I'm Angela Lucier, a professional public speaker, seven-time author, two-time TEDx speaker, and CEO and founder of the Speaker Sisterhood, a network of public speaking clubs for women. And I'm Dr. Jolie Hamilton, a research psychologist, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and ASEC certified sex educator. Together, we're the hosts of Claim the Stage, a podcast about speaking and sisterhood. If you've been a fan, you know I've been doing this show solo, and it's been all about public speaking for years. Well, that all changes now. Well, you're still talking about speaking on stage, but now we're also going to focus on the three things that you need to make an impact, your voice, confidence, and sisterhood. The show is a training ground to go from dreaming to creating. Right. And we'll still be doing interviews with expert guests. Plus, you'll also get more personal stories and insights from us as well. I'm really excited to see where this goes. Me too. And slightly freaked out. Yeah, me too. Welcome to the next chapter of Claim the Stage. Jolie! Hello! <laughs> we, we are here today for a huge episode that we started talking about probably two or three months ago. Right. It's, it was a while, like it got to the point where it was like erasing itself on my whiteboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was like, we should talk about how to actively avoid your destiny because this is pros. a subject. Yeah. We're, we're pro. <laughs> and it's a subject that I think isn't talked about enough. You know, it's like the subject of procrastination is covered the subject of perfectionism, but this subject of just really not following your dream and yeah. why this is a and big one. I have tips and tricks for how to do it. I like, I can have people avoiding their destiny all day long. Yeah. Like, all their whole life, really. Yeah. yeah. I have many too. And <laughs> my background before speaker sisterhood was as a business and career coach. So I dealt with people all day long who were actively avoiding their destiny. And I spent years building tools for them. So I'm excited to pull some of those tools back out and share them on the show today. I love that. And, and do you feel like that gave you a lot of purpose at the time? Absolutely. That, is that your driving purpose? Yeah. I loved, I, I loved helping people get out of their own way and help them to see they don't need to have the whole future figured out to take the first step. And that was always a big moment to watch for them to realize, oh, so I don't have to have like 10 years of work all, you know, perfectly aligned and worked out in order to just think about leaving my job. Right. <laughs> So I thought what we would do for this episode is we would each give a couple of different tips on how to avoid your destiny. And then a couple tips on how to actually go toward your destiny, because we're not just going to highlight the things that stop you, but also I have the things eight tips and tricks to avoid your destiny. Whoa. Okay. I could give them like in a rapid fire though. We don't have to talk about them all, but I started listing them and I'm like, Whoa, I could like, I could definitely, I could change the world. Everyone could avoid their destiny. There's yeah. so many ways that you can avoid your destiny. It's so true. And we could actually make a whole spinoff podcast just about this topic. Cause I wrote down four and then I was like, okay, I have to stop because this is going to be a four hour episode, but we can do part two and three and four. Yeah. If we run out, it's, it's fine. We could definitely keep going. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, do you want to start with your first one and we'll just go from well, there? So I, I made a list. Maybe I thought about this slightly differently, but I made some, I made a quick list of ways that I personally have avoided my destiny, but then I made a tips and tricks list for ways that everyone could avoid their destiny. Ooh, I would love to hear your list. So I made a personal list and it starts with one that is, well, of course, of course, this is a big one for me. Um, I settled for blah, meh sex for 17 years. 
And this, this sounds like, wait, that's very, very personal. Why, like, why would that have to do with your destiny? But it turns out that like where I come alive is talking about and thinking about sex and how we relate to each other. And so all those years that I was settling for this, like perfectly acceptable eh, sex, I was actively suppressing how much I, I love talking about this. And because, because we couldn't talk about it. Like every time we talked about it, we thought about it. I didn't realize that that was actually the, the indicator. Like that, that was the warning light. All I needed to do was look at what can you not talk about? And then I would have, <clears throat> I would have had a better understanding of where it was I needed to go. Not that I had to necessarily wind up talking about sex, but boy, it makes me happy. Wow. I love that we're starting there. Cause that even if other people aren't interested in talking about sex, they can be noticing where in their life, they're sort of letting lackluster yeah. results or like, just, eh. Nah. yeah. Yeah. I that's like, crazy. okay. So that's my first one. How about you? Okay. Um, I didn't make a list of the way that I avoid my destiny, although I probably everything I wrote on here applies to me. So I'll just, pull, <laughs> I'll just pull. <laughs> <laughs> well, one that I was doing on Monday, like 48 hours ago was as I was preparing for the new speaker sisterhood club at the hospital, I became aware of the fact that this club is primarily made up of chiefs of the departments within the hospital. And not only do I just have a fear of doctors <laughs> or feel intimidated by them, but the fact that they're chiefs makes it even more intimidating. And so I said to myself, like, what am I afraid of? And I think that the fear is that I'm not going to appear smart enough to be talking to them. And then I had to ask myself, well, where, where's the proof that I'm not smart enough? And I, I really thought about it for a while. Like, is there anything that points to me not being smart enough to help these people with public speaking skills? And I couldn't come up with one single piece of evidence. And I don't even think your enemies could come up with an, a piece of evidence about that. <laughs> I really don't. This is literally your expertise. And then on top of it, you're a bright, shiny individual. So I'm not surprised that you couldn't come up with it. So your biggest failing is that you can't figure out how, where the evidence is Yeah, that you are not smart enough. I like right. that. Yeah. So <laughs> I think the way that I was avoiding my destiny was by a questioning my ability. And mm. I think so many of us do that because we think I'm not smart enough. I'm not young enough. I'm not, or I'm not old enough. or I'm not experienced enough, or I don't have the right degree or the great right credentials. I know we've talked about this before. So whenever we create those artificial barriers, what we're really doing is just avoiding our destiny because we don't have any real proof that what we think is a problem is an actual problem. And so doing that exercise of like, where has, where's the proof of it helps us to realize we're just creating stories to stop ourselves from going towards our destiny. So that leads right into my second one, because the second way that I personally avoided my destiny was thinking, thinking that I was average, like truly average. And this was a big problem because I, I was doing it so that I could fit into a family that told me the average was good. There's nothing wrong with average, that's true. But the problem is I'm weird. <laughs> like I, it's not, this isn't about whether like, like, are you smarter or, or are you, are you prettier or any of those kinds of, you know, distinctions, but I'm not atypical. Like I tend to think about weird things. I tend to talk about things that other people don't talk about. I tend to be a little bit on the edge of things. 
And I kept trying to, I kept trying to put myself in a box that was invented by a family that it turns out I, I just don't quite fit with. Like they don't hate me or anything. I, but I never quite fit. And when you're, when you don't fit, or at least when I didn't fit, I, I would think about like, what, what do I need to deny about myself? What should I cut off for myself? What do I need? And I, I would sort of like sculpt and shave and, and like make this, this me that would fit for a while and then it would itch. And so I would be myself again. And yeah, it never, it never worked out. The only way I could actually start to feel good in my skin and to, to be myself was to be weirder. Mm -hmm. And that meant looking for, so I never thought about it as looking for proof. I kept looking for proof that I was like my family. Like it, at first it was my family and then it was a group of friends, but I kept looking for the proof that I was like them. Like that's how I would feel. Okay. Just be like these people and you'll be okay because you'll be surrounded. And it was such a limitation because the things that I do aren't things people in my family or my friend group did. So yeah. I like, that wasn't where my genius was going to be. That just wasn't, I needed to be willing to stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Embrace your totally weird. am. You are. <laughs> <laughs> but it took a long time to be willing to stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Earlier, yeah. I would try it on. Like when I was in high school, I tried it on like people do, but mm -hmm. I didn't really get there. Uh, I was definitely well, well into my thirties. And I think it really started to stick when I turned 40. So that reminds me of when I, started my speaking business and corporations were contacting me to do workshops for them. And I thought that what I needed to do was to create a workshop that matched their company culture and their language and, yeah. and their style. And so I was constantly trying to morph myself into an employee there for the workshop. Oh. And then I realized that they're actually hiring me for my style and my company culture and my views, and they don't want me to become one of them for the day. And once I realized that me being me is actually an asset, I started to more embrace my weird as well, because yeah. it's actually part of the package. They're not looking for the chameleon. And that made such a big difference. That was, that's definitely one of the ways that I have shifted my work over the last 10 years, because I used to do that when I was working with a person, I would find all the ways that we were alike and build from there. And now I actually, I feel like I stand in my own um, my own uniqueness. And that offers them a vision of a different way to exist. And they don't need to exist in my way, but they can see that I stick out. And yeah. so if I'm comfortable doing that, then perhaps they can be too. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a version of uh, um, avoiding yeah. your destiny because you're just trying to be something you're not. And when you're doing that, that's not your destiny. <laughs> and I, have a great the opposite. Quote. I have a great quote for this moment. I'm going to read it. Um, okay. It's a quote from a book called The Genius Myth by Michael Mead. Um, and the, the, the Greek word genius is it like it, it's not the way we think of genius. It's not genius like, um, like, oh, you're a genius. You're therefore you're incredibly smart. Like we, we've really reduced that word. <clears throat> it, the, the, way that, the way that genius was thought about was different. So genius stamps each soul as rare and valuable in some way that can both satisfy the individual and serve the world. That's it. That's the yeah. quote. Like, it has nothing to do with intelligence. Nothing to do with intelligence or, or IQ tests or even, um, or even being like 
you're useful in that weirdness. That's the, like, you're useful to yourself and to the world in that weirdness. Yeah. Such freedom in that. Mm -hmm. I love that. We should, we should write that somewhere or you probably already did, but maybe I will too. The second way that I have actively avoided my destiny and I know many others have is by spending time with other people who are also avoiding their destiny because then it normalizes it. (laughs) I mean, that's what I was talking about really by trying to fit in with my family. One of the things that my parents both did is avoid their destiny deeply, deeply avoided. And it was painful to watch because then they never, like they literally died without ever acting on their genius. Yeah. Oh, my brother too terrifying. Well, and then you can all always support each other's excuses. Yes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. That's the way the conversation goes. All the reasons why I can't do X, Y, and Z. And if everyone's bought into it, then that's the conversation. That's it. And I was actually reminded of this, the power of this yesterday when I was going for a walk and I was walking by myself. Usually I'm walking with Max and I saw a tractor trailer walk down the street and I instinctively raised my hand, <laughs> pointed at it. And I said, truck. Nice. And was like, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I really quickly realized that, um, that saying that you're the sum of the people, Parts. the five people, people you spend the most yeah. time with. And I realized, okay, Max is one of those people I spend the most time with. And he is drawing my attention towards the things that he cares about. So I'm always noticing dogs, birds, trucks, and flowers. And so then I thought about other people in my life I'm spending a lot of time with and where are they bringing my attention to? And they, and and it's so, it can be so influential to, um, you know, to really notice how other people are affecting your thoughts and what you're noticing and what you're paying attention to. And seeing that truck and seeing my hand go up without even thinking about it really made me think more about who is in my life who could be helping me to go towards my destiny and who is helping me actively avoid it. And I think that's a good exercise for everyone to go through because it really, really matters. Yeah. And I think pro tip, you don't have to cut people out of your life in order to say, I need to change this dynamic because that is actually one of those difficult conversations that people don't have, but you know, most people are more comfortable being asked a difficult question than asking a difficult question. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you can just go first and say to a person who you care about, but is not, is not helping you lean toward your destiny, if you can go ahead and have a conversation that might be uncomfortable about like what you spend your time focusing on. What do you talk about? Like, for instance, I've had to have an uncomfortable conversation where I leaned a friendship away from gossiping because we were just wasting our time. Um, and, and it wasn't getting us anywhere. And we were, neither of us was really enjoying our time and I could feel it, but we had gotten in this habit of it. Right. So I had the uncomfortable conversation. We changed what we talked about. We stayed friends. It was fine. (laughs) Like, I think she wanted that as well. We just needed to give ourselves that like jostle out of the routine that we were in. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that it's necessarily true that every, every person who isn't helping us meet our destiny couldn't become one of those people. Right. And you're reminding me of a conversation I had a couple of years ago with a friend who's a therapist. And she said, 
you know, I'm really clear on what role every person in my life plays. And I would never come to you and talk about the Red Sox because I know you don't care about sports, but I would call my dad and I would talk to him about the Red Sox because that's something that matters to him. And so as long as I know what each person is doing in my life, then I can reach out to them as needed because I know how they can support me and I can support them. And I thought that is so aware, you know, to be able to recognize people's limitations and uh, what they're able to help with and, and the role they play in your life. And, and not expecting everyone to be everything. I mean, even our spouses, I mean, there are things that I, I talk to the person I'm married to about a lot of stuff, but there's some of it that he just doesn't, he's not interested in. Great. That's what other people are for. We, we get kind of close-minded about that, Mm -hmm. about like, we have to share everything with one person. It tends to be that person we're married to. But you can also stretch that way because I talk about, you know, so I talk about people and psychology all day long. I talk about sex all day long. And when I was first with Ken, he did not get that at all. He was like, what are we doing? But then over time, he found out, in fact, he was incredibly interested in this. He, you know, tagged along to like all these conferences and he grew his interest because of me. So the, that, that, that destiny piece, it it flourished. He actually now has this huge interest in people and relationships. And because he opened himself to being part of my life, to being part of me becoming more me and actively moving directly toward my destiny. And he would never have thought to discover that on his own. Like his, his little chemical engineering slash physics slash it brain was never going to go down that path until it was tied to someone who he wanted to spend time with Mm -hmm. and like stretch into a a space that felt like, oh, that's not for me. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. What's another way you're actively avoiding your destiny or have? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, so here's what I actually have. I have a great list after this. So th- those were my, like my big, oh no, no, wait, see, look at that. I'm trying to avoid like this, the funniest one. You're avoiding the list of the avoiding. Yeah. Okay. This is funny because I was so vehemently against, okay, my kids didn't go to public school. I, I homeschooled them. Um, I did not enjoy my public school career. I did fine, but I just did not enjoy it at all. Um, I didn't have like a bunch of teachers that I was happy to have. I, I didn't just didn't enjoy it. And then even college, I felt very frustrated during most of college, the first go round. And I felt frustrated by systems. And I, even though I was homeschooling my kids, I never let anybody call me a teacher ever. And then um, when I was running groups where I was teaching other people's kids, I wouldn't let anybody call me teacher. And when I, when I started teaching classes for other people and people would call me teacher, I'm like, please just call me Jolie. I, I could not. I, I tried to excise that word teacher from my life so hard so intensely that there is nothing funnier to me than the moment I was sitting, I was sitting with a professor and she's like, you understand that you already are a teacher, right? And I was like, no, she just (laughs) sat there. She just sat there in silence and stared at me for a good five minutes. She was just not going to budge. She just did not leave it. And that was a turning point because I realized that my rejection of the label teacher it hadn't stopped me from living into my destiny, which is absolutely to teach. I teach all day long, constantly. I'm always teaching, but it definitely stopped me from feeling safe to share my knowledge. And um, 
Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a professor. I teach constantly. Even when I was like every business I've run, if you boiled it down, I was teaching something. I, what the heck was it? I've done a, a bunch of work on it since. And I realized that it was the rejection of the label. So if only I had figured out that the label was whatever I made it, I could have, I, I could have avoided a lot of of like distancing myself from my work because it would have been a lot easier to develop those businesses and to develop and to apply for jobs if yeah. I had been able to embrace that word. But I just was so petrified to embrace it. I was like, nope, that's that belongs to a category of stuff I don't want to be. Mm -hmm. It was so silly. And it was yeah. it was about the word and not deciding that I was part of the people and people are who make language. So I could decide to define myself as a teacher in a way that was useful and helpful to me. Yeah. I didn't have to like slap the label on as if somebody else wrote it. Yeah. I love that. And I, I think it can apply in so many ways. I've heard a lot of people who want to write books say, but I'm not an author or people right. who want to speak. I'm not a public speaker. And it's like, well, those people are things who people who write and people who speak. And if you do those things, then you are those things. But yeah, there's this whole connotation around it. And there's a belief that you have to have achieved something in order to get to that point. Yep. I remember giving you a mug, I think last year that said you teacher did. on it. And, and you said, Oh, there's that word. And I didn't know the whole background story. So thanks for sharing that. Cause now I understand. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So that was, you gave that to me when I signed my first, um, professor pro, professor's contract my my very first one and you brought it that day and it was so sweet and i was like there it is i really can't run from it i can't <laughs> run from it any further and wow so what word are you running away from what identity are you running away from cuz i don't know my destiny was definitely right in front of me that whole time yeah would have been nice yeah i'm going to have to think about that i'm sure there's something i'm running away from <laughs> Um, but we'd love to hear from anyone who's listening to this episode that is hearing something in our stories that, you know, is, is the way that you've been living or believing, because I'm sure we're not the only ones with these stories. Yeah. <laughs> um, another thing that really gets in the way of going after your destiny is just looking at the big picture and getting overwhelmed by all the steps and all the things that need to happen in order for that piece to happen. And I, and I know I was in a business accelerator a couple of years ago and there were a couple of restaurants in there and they were trying to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars to open a restaurant and they had never had a restaurant before and they didn't have very much experience, but they had this great idea and they knew that there was a population that needed what they had. And they just kept getting stuck in all of these mucky details of trying to go from no restaurant to restaurant. And I know someone locally, his name is John. He owns a company called Holy Ocumus Company. And it was so fun watching him build that business because he didn't try to go from, I have an idea for hummus to somebody give me $300,000 so I can open a restaurant. He had a little pop-up restaurant in a, in a kitchen, in a co-working space once a week for his first year of operation where he brought little tubs of hummus. He made falafel. He had like four things on his menu and he just tested it. He didn't make a huge investment. He didn't buy a whole industrial kitchen. He didn't like Love do it. anything beyond just making a little bit more hummus at his house each week and bringing it there to sell. And it literally is the best hummus. It is. <laughs> it is. And then people started buying it. So then he showed up a couple of days a week at the pop-up kitchen and then it started to get more popular. So then he was at the pop-up kitchen every day and then it got more popular. So he bought 
a food truck and he brought that to festivals and that got more popular. And then he opened a storefront restaurant, but it was like five years later. And I often think of this story because he was somebody who just took the next step. He didn't try to put 50 steps in line and just take a big leap. He just said, what's the lowest risk? What's the lowest investment that will get me going in the right direction? And I think we get into trouble when we just see, I need to go from zero to a thousand instead of just zero to one. So I'm hearing that you have this, we can think about our destiny as being a thing out way out in front of us like way out, like, how will I, how will I create this thing? So if you, if you imagine yourself as restaurateur, right, that's this way out destiny. But if you think of yourself as a person who shares your gift for making this specific food with, with people, like that's a much, that's still part of that line, that the line, the trend of your destiny, but it's not overwhelming. It's not terrifying. And it reminds you that you can take that step. Like you can take that step on a Tuesday. Yeah. Any Tuesday, but I don't know that you can become a restaurateur right. on any Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. And so much of it is just about the experimentation and about just, I think I want to make goat milk soap and sell it. Yeah. Well then just make a couple batches of soap and see what you think of it. <laughs> this is how I've started most of the businesses I've run. There were a couple where I went, you know, headlong into them, but most of them started because I met the need that was in front of me and yeah. then, and then met it on a bigger and bigger scale until it was a bigger and bigger thing. But yeah. it served me pretty well. It also has let me pivot because I, I am a person who has a lot of beginner energy. So that allows me to pivot. I think one of my destinies is to be an entrepreneur, which is not the same as having one big successful business. Yeah. I've pivoted all over the place and it's been great. I mm -hmm. love it. Well, one of my favorite quotes and it's an Oprah quote, so I kind of feel cliche saying it, but is when you don't know the next step, just take one, the next step. <laughs> like yeah, just take one little step. Just take one step. little and, and Sark, one of my favorite authors, she always talks about micro steps. Yep. And a micro step could be as simple as putting your journal next to your bed and just with the intention of one day writing in it. Like that's a micro step. Like if you constantly beat yourself up because you keep saying, I want a journal before bed every night and you never do, one night just put your journal next to your bed. The next night, put your pen on your journal. The next night, open your journal and feel the pages. The next night, maybe write one line on the journal. And over time, you will get there to writing in your journal, but you're not going to go from never writing a journal to filling a journal overnight. And this is one of my favorite ways to think about getting started because it's way less intimidating and you are taking action. You are moving towards your destiny, even though it may not be at lightning speed, there's still progress. Totally. I love that. Yeah. What's another thing you're doing or, or I, doing? so I have my list now. This is, this is a, this is a great list. Okay. Number eight on my list of great ways to avoid your destiny is overcommit to other people's passions. Yes. Totally overcommit yourself to the things that other people love to do. Yep. Yeah. Just like give away all your time, your energy, um, your creative energy in specific, but also just the minutes of your day, give them all over to the people who come to you and say, I have this great idea. And so I'll do this. And you and I had a conversation about this last week and I stopped and thought about it over the weekend. And I was like, Ooh, yeah, I don't think I've fallen into this trap all the time, but when I do, it has been a huge time suck that has stopped me from 
becoming who I wanted to be in the moment. It, it actually at one point completely course corrected, like it turned me 180 degrees because I was on a path to being a midwife. I was enrolled in school. I was doing that. And my, my husband at the time, who was no longer my husband, wanted to open a gym. I invested all the money I was spending on school in it and turned 180 degrees the other direction and went with it. That defined the following eight years for me. And it wasn't my path. It, don't get me wrong. I, I enjoyed it. You know, I had, I, and I met amazing people, but it wasn't my passion, but I tricked myself into thinking it was my passion because I, once I'd started investing in it, I'd invested money and time. And then I, I had to keep going. Like I, I wanted to prove myself right. And it wasn't until, so seven years had gone by. I don't, that by then opened one gym then divorced that guy opened another gym with another guy. <laughs> And then closed that gym. It wasn't until I was cleaning my basement seven years later and I had to face the box of books from Mm -hmm. having enrolled in midwifery school and give it away because I was like, I I missed that time. I missed it. It was, and now I needed to let go of it because it was no longer my passion, not because I couldn't, I could have turned back, Mm -hmm. but now it wasn't my passion anymore. Um, I had totally divested from that world and I had to let go of that particular me who might have existed. And it was totally because I, I was scared about what it was going to take to become the midwife I wanted to be. And so when, when my partner said, let's do this thing, let's open a gym. It'll be fun. We'll be home with the kids and it'll be great. I was like, okay. And I threw myself at his dream. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Large yikes. Don't do that. That's a big one. Yeah. It's easier to fail at someone else's dream than your own. Totally. It's not the same level of emotional investment. Yep. Yeah. I'm having so many thoughts about this. It's like (laughs) such a big, I mean, we we could talk about this all day, but one thing that I hear all the time is um, I can't do that because I don't have enough time. Yeah. And yet we all have the same amount of time. It's just where we put our attention. And right now I'm talking to Yaakov about all the things he has going on in his life. Cause he is the busiest person I've ever met busier than you somehow, which is hard to beat. I don't even know. <laughs> like, he doesn't have seven children. He doesn't. He that, doesn't. that does that. I think that probably narrows um, his, his scope of responsibility in his home. Yeah, it does. But, it does. but it's not a competition. He does so many things. You just, the list of things you've named. I'm like, that's a lot of things. Yeah. So we were having a conversation about doing less and what we were really talking about was what matters. And when we talk about not having enough time for things, what that conversation is really about is assigning importance to the things that you're spending your time on and what really matters to you. So if you were to go through your week and log all of your hours and look at how much time you spent on Instagram, how much time you spent thinking about your dream, but not actually doing anything and how much time you spent, you know, sleeping, parenting, working, there may not be very many free hours in your week to work on something that is a passion project, but I would be shocked if you couldn't find four hours in a full week and four hours is a lot. That's 16 hours in a month that you could be doing things. So when people say, I don't have any time, what I think they're really saying is I'm just not ready to commit to that. And for whatever reason, like fear, not having enough information. There's all kinds of reasons why we stop ourselves, but using time as an excuse should be an indication that we're avoiding something like we're, we're not, we're in charge of our time, you know? So we should be able to look at that and say, 
why am I coming up with that excuse instead of really thinking about how I could be making time? I think that that's an interesting way to think about configuring your life. But I would also add that I don't, I don't know that we do all have the same amount of time. I, I don't know, because if you have a lot of money, you can buy back time. Mm-hmm. If you have access to money, you can buy back time and you can't if you don't. And so I, that makes me a little nervous to say, um, to say that we can always like that we, everyone can find that time. Cause I know people working three jobs and going to school and I'm like, I don't know that they could find four hours. Like they don't watch any TV. They're like, they're just in there day to day. But I do wonder whether collectively we could create more time for each other. I don't think that as a culture, we are doing a good job of supporting each other without accidentally buying into like fulfilling someone else's dream. It's like, it's a tightrope to walk where we, we help people by lending a hand with babysitting kids or by, um, or by showing up and helping them take care of some task at home or something, you know, things like that in order to create space in, in our community's life, but without overstepping into like, into that space where you're just doing what other people actually want to do. Mm-hmm. It, that feels tricky to me. I also think that maybe there's a way, maybe there's a way to identify your dream, your destiny, it, by looking at how you actually spend your time, by time tracking, by time tracking. Like maybe you are living your destiny, but you don't know it yet because you haven't paid attention to where you, where you spend your time. Mm-hmm. Well, that passion exercise that I have in the Speaker Sisterhood book is is about that because yeah. a lot of times people say, I want to figure out what I'm passionate about and they're assigning passion to some big problem they're going to solve in the world when often passion is already present in the everyday things we're doing. We're just not labeling it that. So by really honing in on each activity you're doing and being able to see which ones are bringing you joy versus the ones that you're just kind of getting through because they need to get done. You're right. You may be already living your destiny and all these little steps you're taking throughout the day, but you're just not looking at it that way. So yeah, a lot of it is about perspective too, and maybe shifting it. I'm a big fan of sequencing too. It's, it's okay to try to have everything, but in sequence rather than at the same time. Um, I have been a try to do all the things at one time person in the past when I, when I learned about the idea of sequencing and having what I wanted at these different, you know, at different times in my life, it freed me up a lot. So one of the things that I did was I had my kids young and I read this book called sequencing. I have no idea who wrote it. It it was an old book. I found it in a box of La Leche League books. And I read this book, um, when Sage was a baby and I thought, oh, I'm 23 I don't actually have to have everything right now. Um, so I, I stepped way back. I downshifted in my business. I was at the time I was designing um, wedding gowns and bridesmaids gowns and things. I stepped way back. I, I downshifted and said, I'll do that more when she's a little older. And it felt a little bit like putting off my destiny, but it also reminded me that I was only going to get a chance to be with my kids full-time for a short period of time. I knew it wasn't going to last forever because I I have so many passions. I knew I was going to want to go back to work, but it freed me from the idea that I had to do it right now. I could live out. Part of my destiny was to be a very involved parent. Like at, and I just wanted that. I don't think it's the one way to do it, but I wanted it. 
giving myself permission to, to want that as part of my destiny was a big deal because yeah. I, I felt weird about it. I felt mm -hmm. like I should just try to have all the things all at once. Yeah. It was relaxing not to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To build on that. One of the things I wrote down too, was, um, you can actively avoid your destiny by trying to be perfect when you oh, start. Definitely. Nail, and, you can nail it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because that means you have to have everything figured out on your first step. And if you've never done it before, that's really hard to do because that means you're going to be doing so much research, read so much reading, so much prepping that maybe years are going to go by before you just take that first step. And one of the things that I learned as an entrepreneur through different programs I've taken is the best way to learn about what works is to do it. And then you iterate and you shift and pivot and you make another thing based on what you learned the first time. And that, that first launch is not about getting it right. It's about getting more information. And yeah. so whatever you do is, is not meant to be a blockbuster success that takes off and makes millions of dollars. It's your first experiment that gives you more information about what you're doing. So you're not just constantly thinking about, could it work? Would it work? Who would buy this? How much should it cost? What should it look like? Where should I sell it? And I'm talking about business, but this could go for anything. This totally. Okay. This is what I finished my dissertation in less than 18 months from start to finish. And the way I did that was by deciding to follow this one piece of advice. It was the best piece of advice I got for the whole process. It was your dissertation should be your worst research. That sounds like terrible advice. No. But the idea was that this is going to be the first piece of professional, you know, research that you do all on your own and you're going to put it out into the world. And the idea would be that you do more than and get better and better, better yeah. at it. Yeah. And so if you try to get it perfect, as if this tome that you're creating is the perfect thing, where does that leave you? It sets you up for failure later. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, I'm one of the only people I, I know from my particular program who's continued to do research after finishing that piece, that, that pressure on perfection leads us away from just doing the thing. And for what it's worth, I think my dissertation came out great. I get awesome comments on it and people read it. Yeah. My dissertation is actually readable. I can't so. wait to read it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll loan you the huge book. It's really, yeah. really funny. You can have the hard copy if you want. Yeah. I want to read before bed. That's, That's it. It's, it's, a, it's a cozy cuddle up dissertation. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I'll take a bubble bath bring the dissertation. Yeah, exactly. Cause that's what people do. But I had, you know, there were two more pieces on my list delay because you'll be ready after X, yeah. Y, and Z yeah. and overthink and fail action. Like, like all of these things are wrapped together. It's all part of one package. Yep. Just do. Yeah. I remember it's a very Nike moment. Just do Pam Victor, who we had on the show a couple of weeks ago, when I took my first improv class with her, the, one of the first things she said to our class was we're going to do an exercise and everyone tends to want to be perfect at it. But what I'm going to ask you to do is to be the most boring improviser on the planet. Yes. In essence, she was saying, take the pressure off of yourself of being a perfect beginner and just let it be whatever it is. And I think about that all the time when I'm starting something new, how can I be the worst at this? Yeah. And you don't have to be a natural, whatever yeah. that's supposed to be like, oh, you're a natural at it. And it just cut like, you're perfect. It, it already flows. Yeah. Bite me. 
<laughs> when I wrote my second and third books, uh, who's with us and do and make those books were intended to be introductions to business ownership with the intention of kind of funneling people into my online community, because once they decided they wanted to start the business, they could join my community and get videos and additional learning. And after I wrote those books, published them, marketed them, went out and did speaking gigs about them. Two months later, I changed my whole business and I closed <laughs> the online community. <laughs> And I, and I pivoted over to public speaking and there was a part of me that was like, wow, that was a lot of work for nothing, but it wasn't for nothing. It was for so much because I learned a ton from that process. Did I make a lot of money? No, I spent a lot of money, but in the grand scheme of things, it was like going and getting an MBA yep. without having to sit in a classroom because I created my own MBA. I learned how to write and structure a book and work with a, a, an author coach and an editor and a graphic designer and a publisher and a marketer and a distributor. And I, that's a lot of skills to learn about an industry that has so many ties to speaking and business. And then I was able to take all of that and then publish four more books based on all the things I learned from writing those books. So sometimes, especially authors, they want to write the perfect book the first time. I say, just write a book. And then once that book is done, you'll have so much knowledge about how the process works that maybe the second book will be the, the book, but. And maybe you won't even know. I remember when Elizabeth Lester was on your show, when you interviewed her, I remember her saying, cause she was talking a bunch about Cassandra Speaks, yeah. but she said, but everybody wants to talk about Broken Open. So I guess that's just the book I'm going to be talking about. <laughs> right, right. And so she wrote Broken Open a long time ago. So for her, she's probably like, yeah, I mean, I wrote it. I processed the stuff. Yes, it's relevant, but. I have new thoughts and people are still looking back there because it was so pivotal. So you may not even know what the perfect book is. Yeah. I, I don't, I I'm working on another book now and I'm like, I don't know what I put out into the world will resonate with people. I can imagine, I can imagine a book just falling flat because I needed it more than the people I wind up getting it in front of mm -hmm. who could say, yeah, we create because we're creators. Like right. that's a, it's a human quality to be a creator. Yeah. Any final words of wisdom? Um, I, I, I want to, I want to say one last, <laughs> I want to, I want to give one last one yeah. because it's, it's important. Um, it's something I see all the time. I see it in my practice. I saw it when I was parenting as a, as a young parent. Um, I see it now even more as my peers parent their teens, a great way to avoid your actual destiny is to try to have your kids live out the destiny you thought you were going to have. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's, I know we hear it, but I would invite everybody to just take a moment and feel into whether you're remembering that you're living your one wild and precious life, as Mary Oliver would say, and whether you're remembering that your children are actually going to have theirs and it's going to be probably so distinctly different from the destiny you imagine for them that you get to be a, 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 a guide on the side at best. Yeah. And I've watched so many people avoid their destiny by trying to help their children get a better foothold so that they can, their children can go out and live the destiny that they had wished for themselves. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're avoiding their destiny and pushing their children towards something that maybe is a passion, maybe not. 
it's um and it's it winds up being pretty tragic it can it can look really it can be pretty messy <laughs> and what i see on the other side because i often work with people in their 40s 50s who are are they they're they're dealing with the repercussions of this is that there's a lot of regret and it's a regret about uh, if that comes from both sides like they regret pushing their kids but they also regret not doing the thing they wanted to themselves not saying you know what if i want to take these classes take them myself if i want to do like i want to follow this path even if i can't be you know even if i can't be an astronaut it doesn't mean i can't go be super obsessed with astrophysics i i can um maybe my role will be something else um yeah. See, see if you're, so you can take a look and just see if you're accidentally, uh, handle it, handing over, but also possibly force fitting someone else into your destiny. I think you could do that too, with a friend or a spouse like that. That doesn't just have to be kids. I tend to see it most with our kids, but yeah. Jung has a great quote about the, the, the greatest, um, the greatest problem of parenthood is the, the greatest hindrance is the unlived life of the parent. Mm -hmm. That's the greatest hindrance to childhood. So if you have an unlived life, if you have an unlived destiny, live it out yourself. Don't ask your kids to live it for you. Yeah. And if that makes me super unpopular to have said, then I'll take it. Okay. Well, I would say probably, but, <laughs> but also it's true. I want to share one final thing that I learned from you. I think before I knew you, I, I thought of my life as an adventure. I thought of it as an ongoing experiment, which meant that whatever happened was okay because it was all about gathering information, learning, trying new things, not about the failure or, or mistakes, but about just the ongoing learning, the classroom. And the thing that I learned from you is that that process doesn't have to look good and I don't have to feel bad if it's, if it's messy. And that word mess you've used over and over and over again. And you've even talked about it in terms of building a relationship with someone and saying the relationship doesn't really start until the mess comes out. And, and thinking about my adventure as messy feels so much more comfortable and exciting than trying to build a perfect adventure. And in some ways I think I was like, I wanted every next adventure to line up perfectly after the last adventure and to make sense and to somehow show growth. And I have this part of my personality that is so optimistic and is always looking for, what did I get from this? Instead of just focusing on the fact that like, oh, this is actually really messy and like <laughs> it's, it's hard and it's bringing up all kinds of feelings I'm not ready to deal with. So you've given me that gift of being able to focus more on the part of it that doesn't feel so great or that is just, is not going to make me look good or all the things that I think I would just sort of avoid in the past. And by embracing that I'm learning so much more. So I would say on the road to embracing your destiny, allow it to be messy and, and Love don't just allow it to be messy, messy, invite the mess, right? Make some messes. Yeah. yeah. And if you make a mess that hurts someone else, like that can be part of the growth process. That's where you learn how to do a really amazing, excellent apology and how to make restitution. That's how you learn how to repair. It's not the rupture in relating, but the repair that, that shows you how you can go forward and how you can, can have something truly amazing. The rupture doesn't define that the repair, the repair process does. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to end. This was a fun episode. I'm glad we 
we did it. And uh, if anyone wants to share their experiences with avoiding their destiny, please email me, Angela at speakersisterhood.com. We'd love to share your insights on the show. I'm sure we will be talking about this again in the future. Sure we will. All right. Well, thanks for, thanks for sharing your list today. Yeah, it was fun, you know, and weird. (laughs) Yeah, always. Jolie and I hope you love listening as much as we love making this show. If so, tell us by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or share it with a friend. Claim the Stage is a production of Speaker Sisterhood and is produced in the Glitter Closet in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Music is composed by Kelly Vogel of Sound Passage. All right, that does it for us this week. Until next time, stop waiting, start creating. Bye for now.